I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41. It's on page 602 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, please feel free to use that one. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that seat Bible home with you and make it your Bible. I wonder if any of you over the age of 45 or so remember the commercials that the brokerage E.F. Hutton ran in the 70s and 80s. You're going to date yourself if you shake your head. In the commercials, someone would say, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and immediately all those within earshot would stop talking and turn to hear E.F. Hutton's financial advice. Then the commercial would close with the line, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Unfortunately, people are listening to E.F. Hutton no longer. The firm fell apart in 1985 when the president of the company entered a guilty plea to 2,000 criminal counts of federal mail and wire fraud. At that time, E.F. Hutton was sold to and dismantled by the company now called Citigroup. You know, friends, sometimes it seems as if people have given up on listening to the triune God in the same way people stopped listening to E.F. Hutton. Surely in the 21st century, there are more sophisticated ways to be religious than for a preacher to stand behind a pulpit and explain and apply a text from an ancient word for 30 or 40 or dare I say 50 minutes. Surely in this age where visual media is king, where people are saturated by, by YouTube and endless television streaming options and digital shopping, where surely there's a more dynamic way to get people connected to God. Surely in this day of Instagram and 280 character tweets and TikTok and same day shipping and DoorDash, surely there's a better way than a sermon to engage this attention depleted society. Well, this morning we're continuing a series that we'll circle back to from time to time here at Everyday and Grace on the disciplines of a godly church. What are the habits? What are the patterns of a church that increasingly looks like Jesus together. Last week, we explored the priority and privilege of gathering with God's people as the church. And this week, we turn our attention to the discipline of listening to God. Friends, it is God's word that gathers God's church. And the church gathers for the word. We gather to listen, to use E.F. Hutton phrasing, when God speaks his people listen. Despite the contemporary challenges, the faithful preaching, and the faith-filled listening, it's our conviction here at Redeeming Grace Church that preaching is the lifeblood of Christ's church. It's what gives people life. It's what keeps us alive. Our ability to glorify God together hinges on the degree to which the word is faithfully proclaimed here and embraced by faith by the saints Every week, week after week. Here's the main idea of the sermon this morning. It is a topical sermon, so here's the thesis or the main idea, not of a specific text, but of the sermon this morning. Listening to the preaching of God's Word 
is the most important thing we do together as a church. Perhaps some of you are thinking, really? The most important thing? More important than singing and praying and taking the Lord's Supper and fellowshipping with one another and then ministries like home groups and ladies' Bible studies and men's reading groups and on and on. More more important than our evangelistic programs and sending missionaries? Is that what you're saying? Well, I would never want to pit Christ's commands against each other. I don't want to do that, but I do hope by the end of the sermon you'll be convinced that if the word isn't faithfully preached and a congregation isn't faithfully listening with the intent of heart submission to the words, all the other habits and ministries of a church will at best struggle and limp along, and at worst will wilt and die. Faith-filled listening to the preaching of God's Word is the most important thing we do together. Three points this morning. Number one, listen to the God who speaks. Number two, listen like Your life depends on it because it does. And number three, listen with expositional ears. Say, that sounds strange. Yes. Listen to the God who speaks. Listen like your life depends on it. Listen with expositional ears. Friend, let's turn our attention to this first point. Listen to the God who speaks. One of the most awe-inspiring realities in the universe is that we have a God who speaks. In fact, God's self-relevatory speaking, let's say relevatory, revelatory speaking, there's a difference. God's self-revelation in speaking is one of the defining attributes that sets him apart from other gods. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, my guess is that you carry this presupposition in your back theological pocket, right? You, you rarely get, get it out, though, to ponder it. We read the Bible, we study the Bible, we listen to the Bible, which we understand to be God's word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit without any mixture of error, as our statement of faith says. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we believe that, right? Let's get to the deeper stuff. Let's get to the reality that are deeper then God's revelation to us it just washes over us like water in the shower in the morning. But friends, the fact that God speaks to us is not a ho-hum truth, but rather one of the very things that sets him apart as God. In the ancient Near East, the nations that surrounded Israel all had their own gods, Egypt and the Canaanites or Babylon, Assyria. But guess what? The gods of those nations did not act in speech. Yes, they were thought to be powerful gods, but they were not talking gods. There was only one God who talked, and that was Yahweh, the God of Israel. God's ability to speak authoritatively and effectively and powerfully to his people is what set him apart as the Lord. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in chapters 41 to 44 forcefully contrasts over several chapters the glory and majesty of the one true and living God with the false gods whom his people had committed spiritual adultery with. If you were to read chapter 44, you'd hear the Lord's sneering description of how these gods came to be. (laughs) He said, you cut down a tree and you use part of it for wood for your fire, right? You use part of it to fuel your Traeger grill. No, he said, literally, you use part of it to bake with in the oven. 
and then you use the other part to fashion your God? It's ridiculous enough that the idols are literally a hunk of wood or a hunk of metal. But because that's all they are, they can't do anything. They're completely impotent. They can't see or hear. More importantly for our topic this morning, they cannot speak. Look at how the Lord addresses these idols in Isaiah 41, 21. Look at verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is about to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. God is beckoning these imposter gods to do something. Or even just just tell us what you're going to do. We're listening. I'm sorry, did you say something? No, the idols are impotent in their silence. They do not and cannot speak. Friends, I want to take the next several minutes and think about how our God is so utterly and gloriously different than that pathetic description of the false gods. We're going to walk through several passages of Scripture this morning. You can turn to them if you want, or you can just listen. So put on your seatbelt, and here we go. In the beginning, there was literally nothing but God. Genesis 1 says that God spoke all things into existence. He created ex nihilo out of nothing. And God said, Genesis 1-3, let there be light, and there was light. And so it went through all the days of creation. God's word, friends, is incomprehensibly powerful and effective and authoritative. God speaks and things happen. You and I create with paintbrushes and computers and bulldozers, but not God. He created through his word. But not only did God create through his word, he gave life through his word. Do you remember how God created Adam? We looked at it several months ago. Genesis 2, 7 says that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Even the gift of life was from the breath of God's mouth. The psalmist in Psalm 33 reflected on Genesis 1 and 2 in Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. God's word and his breath are the same. They create and they give life. Amazingly, not only did God create through his word, he actively sustains all things through the word of his word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3, our call to worship. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he The Lord Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love what one author wrote. Scientists tell us that atoms and quarks, planets and suns are held together by the mechanical laws of gravitation, electromagnetism, and strong and weak interaction. But think, such laws are themselves the gusts of God's breath. They are words rolling off God's tongue second by second. Friends, this is our speaking God. He actively created and sustains all things, including you. 
through his authoritative and powerful and effective and life-giving word. But our God doesn't just create and sustain through his word. His word is the very basis for mankind's relationship with him. So think about Adam and Eve. Their relationship with God as image bearers was based on God's word. You know, what was striking in the Garden of Eden was not that Adam and Eve saw God, but that they, that they what? They talked with God. They conversed with God. God spoke and their life was a response to his word. That's why when Satan launched his attack to disrupt the fellowship between man and God, what did he do? He didn't question God's appearance. He questioned his word. He hissed in Eve's ear. Did God really say? He tempted her to question whether God's word was authoritative and powerful and effective and good and life-giving. Adam and Eve's fall and the rest of humanity's sin is by nature a rejection and rebellion against the word of God. When humanity fell, we, as it were, stopped our ears and we ceased listening to God. Any further listening would be by his mercy alone. Friends, if God's speech in Genesis 1 and 2 aren't enough to cause your heart to erupt in praise, Genesis 3 through Revelation 22 should do the trick. The fact that God kept speaking after Adam's rebellion should stagger us and humble us and cause us to shout for joy. God had every right for the last words he ever spoke to humanity to be his words of judgment over Adam and Eve. But as we saw in the Genesis series, even in the words of judgment, God spoke words of mercy and hope, and he promised to bring us salvation. God kept speaking. God revealed himself to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob by his word. When God rescued and redeemed his people from their slavery in Egypt, what did God give them at Mount Sinai? An ornate drawing of himself? A vision of his resplendent glory? No, in fact, it was just the opposite. When God descended on Sinai, he descended in smoke and fire and storm. Those cataclysmic things obscured the people's sight of him. And his voice thundered and it terrified the sinful people. Instead of a picture of himself, God gave Moses, the mediator of the covenant, his words, the 10 words, the 10 commandments, the law. God instructed Israel to place these stone tablets with his words on them inside a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. They were to place this box inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the wilderness and eventually in the temple of Jerusalem. So when the high priest came year after year into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of his people, guess what he saw? He didn't see a statue or an image of Yahweh. What did he see? He saw the box with God's word inside. How would God's people know him? Not as the God of sight, but as the God of sound. They would not see his face, but they would hear his word. He speaks and his people listen. Turn quickly to Deuteronomy chapter six. It's on page 151. Deuteronomy chapter six. I know we're taking a bit of a shotgun approach this morning, but hang with me. Deuteronomy 6, throughout Israel's wilderness wandering, God continued to speak 
to his people through Moses, the covenant mediator. And Moses would then preach God's word that he gave him to the assembly, to the congregation of Israel. He would proclaim Yahweh's word to the gathering. In fact, the entire book of Deuteronomy is really a series of Moses' sermons to the assembly. And if you were to summarize the entire book of Deuteronomy, I think it would probably be the words of Deuteronomy 6.4. Look at it. Hear. Listen. Hear, O Israel. Not look. Not smell. Not taste. Not touch. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. How important was it for Israel to listen to God? We'll flip over to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, verse 12. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. Friends, here's the type of listening that God expects. Not the I'm listening but not really listening type. Every husband in the room knows that type of listening, unfortunately. Not the casual you know, data transfer kind of listening like students do in the classroom. Biblical listening goes far beyond that. When we listen to God, friends, we not only incline our ear, we incline our heart. We listen not just with the inner ear, but with the inner man. We're, we're to listen to this speaking God and obey Him with all that we are. One more passage in Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. In this entire book of Deuteronomy, Moses knows that he's going to pass off the scene soon. He's not going to enter the promised land with the people. And so the question is, who is going to deliver God's word to God's people after Moses dies? Let's start reading in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses' word, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him, this prophet, you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that's Sinai, on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Friends, how did God plan to keep speaking to his people? God would raise up preachers of the covenant. We call them prophets in the Old Testament. God wouldn't just communicate to his people through his word, but his word that was preached and proclaimed by the prophets. Notice what verse 15 says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. 
Well, in one sense, there were plenty of prophets like Moses, weren't there? There were plenty of faithful prophets, praise God. We know of Samuel and Elijah and Isaiah and many others. They were like Moses in their faithfulness to the Lord. But on the, on the other hand, they were not like Moses. They did not know God face to face like Moses did. They didn't lead God's redemption of his people like Moses did. And so Israel kept waiting for that type of prophet. Centuries later, there came an Israelite who preached with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. One who reinterpreted the law as fulfilled in himself. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration recorded in Matthew 17 and Luke 9 when the, when the cloud of God descended on the mount like at Sinai. When Jesus' kingdom glory was unveiled. This time, the Lord's voice thundered, not in judgment, but in mercy. What did he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The prophet like Moses promised by Deuteronomy 18 had arrived. But he is far better than Moses. He is the word made flesh. The mediator of a new and better covenant who shed his blood to forge a relationship with his people. We read earlier in Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, these, these days between the ascension of Christ, the coming of Christ, his resurrection and ascension, and his second coming, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Friends, all that to say, listen to the God who speaks. He has spoken fully and finally in Jesus. You know, there's no, there's no more ongoing revelation to us, is there? Ultimately, we come to listen to God's word every week. And we don't do so generically, but as God's word fulfilled in Christ the Son. We respond with Peter and James and John to the thundering voice of God on the mount. Listen to him. Beloved, we firmly believe that when God's word is proclaimed in gatherings like this, Lord's Day after Lord's Day in churches around the world, to the degree the preacher is faithful in proclaiming God's word, God is speaking to his people. Friends, when I get up here and preach every week, I'm not under any delusion that my words are revelatory like the prophets of old. Rather, my ministry is proclamatory. I simply deliver the king's mail. I herald the king's message. I report the news. Peter instructed us, whoever speaks, presumably speaks in teaching the church, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, as one who speaks the words of God. Friends, because I'm an ambassador of the king that heralds the king's message, my prayer every week is that God would help my preaching to be with authority. Not because I'm one of the elders. Not because I'm the teaching pastor or whatever. Authority does not rest on me as an individual or even ultimately in my office or in this church. I don't try to muster bluster, okay? Rather, the authority with which I aim to preach is the authority of the king. 
and it is manifest in his word. John Calvin described the Bible as the royal scepter of the king. It's the instrument through which the Lord Jesus wields his authority. Friends, I realize that in and of myself, I've got nothing valuable to say on a weekly basis. So I better be sure that what I'm saying faithfully reveals what God has said and then do my best to faithfully apply what Christ and his gospel has said. There's a poignant symbolism in preaching, isn't there? A congregation hears the voice of one man who stands behind the scriptures. It's a living picture each Sunday that we come into relationship with God by responding to his word. God speaks. Therefore, I preach or whoever stands here preaches and we listen. It ought to lay both the preacher and the congregation low in humility and then raise us up with joy that we have the privilege to hear God speak. Brothers and sisters, Christians throughout church history have made the preaching of God's word the centerpiece of his church. And so it is here at Redeeming Grace. We want the preaching of God's word to be the engine of this church's ministry and the focal point of our gatherings. The thing that we want to draw you here and maintain and demand your attention here in our gatherings more than anything else we do is the preaching of God's word. As important as singing is, as in the prayers and the reading of scripture and the Lord's Supper, we're convinced that the preaching of God's word ought to be the centerpiece. And so to help with that, we design our services so that the sermon, the text of the sermon, shapes the rest of the elements of our service. Have you ever noticed that? That's intentional. It's deliberate. Okay? So as best we're able, we choose our hymns based on the theme of the sermon text. This morning, we sang about the Word of God together. So that we not only hear the truth in the sermon, but we praise God for these truths as we sing. Paul instructed churches to give themselves to the public reading of Scripture. And so what we do in our, in our Scripture reading here at Redeeming Grace is that, is that we pick a passage of Scripture that connects to the sermon text. Sometimes it connects biblically or theologically, sometimes just thematically. And usually it's going to be from the opposite testament of the sermon text. Listen, is that a thus says the Lord thing, that way of doing things? No, of course not. But we feel like it's a way in wisdom that we can aim the entire service like a laser beam toward the truth of the preached word. Friends, I know this is countercultural. It is. It's countercultural in both human culture and sadly in church culture. I know that we're asking a lot of you in this honey, I shrunk my attention span age. We ask you to sit through a 40 to 50 minute sermon. This is the day of blurbs and texts and TED Talks. And I know there are many churches that have yielded to the day's cultural ethos. Sermons need to be accompanied, after all, by media and presentation software and visual stimuli. They're best if complemented by movie clips and are no longer than 25 minutes. But friends, we want to push back on that cultural norm a little bit here at Redeeming Grace and expect more of his church. We are the people of the God who speaks 
And so we eagerly listen. Number two, listen like your life depends on it. Because it does. Jesus, quoting Deuteronomy 8.4, said in Matthew 4.4, in response to the temptation of Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, you want to know what the most basic lesson of the entire Bible is? There are two ways to live. You can listen to God's word or you can reject it. God's word is like a dividing line for humanity. It separates the listeners and the non-listeners. Those who listen with ears of faith and those who stop their ears in rebellion or turn away in apathy. Those who listen, friends, live. They listen and they live eternally. They are progressively and then one day fully restored to the image of God as listeners to God. One day they'll see Him. The age of the ear will give way to the age of the eye. Those who don't listen, they die. They will die eternally. They will face God's justice because they turned away from His voice, from His salvation through His Son. The reality is because of the extent of our depravity and our sin nature, none of us listen to God naturally. We were born non-listeners. None of us on our own want to listen to God and be reconciled to Him. Parents, I know this is discouraging, isn't it? When our kids are apathetic toward the things of God, it's heartbreaking when their hearts are hard and their ears are plugged. But such is all humanity without the miracle of grace. Perhaps one of the most sobering verses in all the Bible was preached at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 29, verse 4, by Moses in response to their stubborn sinfulness. Listen to Deuteronomy 29, 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In other words, the majority of Israel didn't listen because they didn't have a heart that wanted to listen. They were entirely dependent on God's mercy to have that kind of heart. But friends, the constant refrain of Scripture is that when God, who spoke the cosmos into existence and gave physical life to all of His creatures, when that God wants to give spiritual life to someone, all He has to do is speak the word. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I hope your fingers are nimble this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, page 965. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church in the midst of his apostolic suffering for the sake of the gospel. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Friends, in other words, there is a tendency and a temptation in every ministry of the gospel 
to attempt to manipulate spiritual life, to water down the truth, to depend on gimmicks and something other than the preaching of the gospel. He goes on. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, why does Paul say that he's renounced these underhanded, word-tampering ways? Because God has the ability to do a work of new creation in someone's heart. Even the God of this world, Satan, who himself has blinded people's eyes from seeing the truth, is no match, friends, for the light of God's new creation work. And what is this new creation light that penetrates the darkness? Look at it. Look at the text. What is the light? It's the light of the gospel. It's the preached message that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whenever God purposes to do so, He merely speaks, let there be light into the black night of someone's soul. And in an instant that that person hears the gospel ignited by the Spirit, the soul blazes with the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And the miracle of the new birth happens. Years ago, I remember hearing my pastor Greg say that one of his favorite things to do as a pastor is to officiate a wedding. And now that I've done a few, I would have to agree with him. In that ceremony, the officiant does something truly incredible. At the climax of the ceremony, when, when, a, when you say, by the power invested in me by the state of Arizona and as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I now pronounce you man and wife. I literally speak something into existence that previously did not exist. It is incredible. Boom, out of thin air, at my very words, God creates a covenant union between a man and his wife. It's crazy. Well, friends, this is what is happening through the preaching of the gospel. We speak, and God calls into existence the things that are not. God resurrects the dead. He heals the broken. He reconciles the enemies. Perhaps you're, you're here and you're thinking, okay, but I'm a Christian, okay? God has already done this work in my heart. I turned from my sin by faith to Christ. I've embraced what Jesus did and dying for me in my place. And he's risen for the dead to conquer death in my behalf. I believe that connected to Jesus by faith. Yes, but brother and sister, remember that we aren't merely saved by faith through the word. We persevere by faith through the word. Think about Hebrews 4. The author of Hebrews is writing to believers. He's writing to believers. It's very clear. And he warns them sternly about the folly of falling away from Christ. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 in Hebrews 4, 7. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, friends, we listen to the voice of God as believers like our life depends on it. Because it does. 
we must keep gripping God's promises by faith. We must keep heeding the warnings of the folly of turning away from Jesus by faith. Yes, our saving faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17, but so does our sanctifying faith. So does our persevering faith. We live by the word of God. Beloved, every time you come and you gather here, we gather here on Sunday, let me encourage you to do two things. Number one, come hungry. And number two, leave full. Come hungry and leave full. You know, I think it's a common misconception that what you get out of a sermon is entirely dependent upon the preacher. There's no question that the Lord has placed a burden of responsibility on those who preach the gospel. But friends, a tremendous responsibility also lies on the shoulders of the congregation and the individual members to eagerly and joyfully receive the word. Every time someone stands here in the pulpit, whether it's me or someone else, we want you to open your Bibles expectantly, ready to hear from God. No matter what the preacher's style is, no matter how dynamic or not he is, or how long he preaches. Ask for your grace in that. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, when we come to the word, we should think within ourselves, we are to hear God in this preacher. Does this mean I'm going to preach a home run every week? It's not possible. Some sermons are going to be better than others, admittedly. My goal is merely to get us on base every week, okay? To be faithful to the text and to apply it to our lives so that when I preach and when we listen, the Spirit takes the kindling of God's Word and He lights a spark that burns in our souls. What we're aiming for when we gather, friends, every week is a two-way event. I preach, God willing, by His grace, with the authority of Christ, as accurately and as helpfully as I can. And you listen with the intention of submitting to God's Word and to obeying Him by faith. You know, I remember very few specific meals over the course of my life. Oh, yeah, I remember the anniversary dinner at Ruth's Chris. But very few are like that, let's be honest. So it is with the Word of God as it's preached Sunday after Sunday. I remember very few sermons in my life. I remember a few. But I remember the specifics of very few. They won't always be spectacular they won't always be notable. But as the word is faithfully preached, we know when God wants it to, it's going to grant spiritual life to the dead and it will, by God's grace, sustain the lives of Christians who gather to receive it. You look back over the course of your life, the course of your physical life with food and the course of your spiritual life with preaching and you realize the preaching of God's word kept me alive. Come hungry, leave full. Number three, listen with expositional ears. All right, let's get to the weird one, right? If our God has spoken to us in his word and he continues to speak through the word as it's preached, if God gives and sustains life through his word, 
then surely our theology of the word will affect the way that we preach and the way that we listen. In other words, if preaching is not tethered tightly to the word, it's not faithful preaching. Preachers are to expose God's word, plain and simple. A preacher gives his hearers to, to an opportunity to respond and hear faithfully insofar as he succeeds in faithfully reproducing what God has already said. That's why, friends, we believe wholeheartedly that, that the main diet of our preaching here at Redeeming Grace Church should be expositional preaching. It's preaching that aims to expose God's word. It's, it's preaching that lets the word set the agenda, not the preacher. So friends, when I, when I sit down to study each week, you know, I'm coming to the text with some presuppositions. I am. I'm, I'm coming to the text with some maybe preconception of what I think the text means, what it's about. But to the best of my ability every week, I'm trying to let the word reshape those preconceptions. Let the word reshape my thoughts and my understanding and my life as I prepare to preach. Expositional preaching, put simply, is, is preaching that makes the main point of the text the main point of the sermon. I'm talking about both the content and the purpose, right? Both the what and the so what. Now, most of the time, this looks like me or whoever's preaching, preaching through books of the Bible. God did not inspire his word topically. And there must be a reason for that in his wisdom. So even though topical sermons like this one are useful from time to time, if we make the main diet of our preaching ministry topical preaching, Every week, you'll come to hear a sermon in which the starting line agenda was chosen by me rather than the agenda being dictated by an all-wise and sovereign God. Now, the irony of advocating for expositional preaching while preaching a topical sermon is not lost on me, okay? Obviously, I believe from time to time, topical sermons are helpful. But in the same way, Bo, that I think from time to time, a juice diet might be helpful. It can accomplish something very specific, but it's not healthy as a staple of your life. You might debate me on that. I don't know. So does that mean that expository preaching has to be verse by verse? No. And, and you know, it's our, it's our common practice to do that, but it, it's also a common misconception that expository preaching has to be verse by verse. Sometimes I'll preach at different altitudes, Right. Like our Matthew series, we're going verse by verse through the text, right? But Genesis that we just finished, I covered more ground, didn't I? I went faster through the text at a higher level. Who knows? Maybe sometimes I'll preach an overview of an entire book in one sermon. Maybe. Who knows? It's not about the length of the sermon text, but rather is the main point of that text the main point of the preacher's sermon. Now, before I shift into a little bit of application, let me just say this. Thank you for the way that you love expositional preaching, for the way that you encourage me in it, for the way that you respond to the word as it's preached. But let me encourage you, friends. We need to shift beyond merely being an active listener to being an expositional listener. And here's what I mean. Just like my sermon's agenda should be shaped by the word, so should your listening agenda. You should come every Sunday, not to get the practical how-tos about, you know, this life. There may be some of that in the sermon, but that is not the point. 
you're not coming to go out feeling better about yourself or to twist the scripture to fit your personal cause, but rather you should come fully intended to submit your thoughts, to submit your desires, to submit your dreams, to submit your, your beliefs and your actions to the word. You're willing to let your prior interpretation of a passage be reshaped by the preaching of God's word. You're eager to adjust your thinking on a theological issue because the word is molding your understanding of who God is. You're willing to bow your will and your heart to Christ when he through his word calls you to obey. This is what I mean when I say listen with expositional ears. God's agenda shapes your agenda. In closing today, let me just offer a few ways in order to foster this type of listening in our life together. Again, these are wisdom applications. These, I don't know that any of them are thus say the Lord. But I think these are ways that we can become expositional listeners. Number one, read through the passage. Read through the text before coming to the gathering. Friends, other than these topical sermons, you should never have an excuse not to know what the sermon of the, the, the text of the sermon is going to be in the next Sunday, right? We include the, the upcoming sermons in the bottom of the announcements inside the back cover of the bulletins. You'll see the next three sermons most every Sunday. I send out an email to our church family every Saturday to remind you what we're going to be doing in our gathering. So whether, you know, friends, whether it's part of your devotional time or whether you read it with your family on Saturday night, take a few minutes before you come and read ahead. Read the text. Perhaps you could even try to outline what the main point of the text is so that you're an active and engaged listener when you hear the sermon. Number two, make the, the Sunday sermon part of your normal conversation with fellow church members. Make the Sunday sermon part of your normal conversation with fellow church members. Jonathan Lehman describes a word-centered church as a church where the word of God reverberates back and forth among the church members. It bounces around like against the walls of a canyon. The word begins here at the pulpit and then pings around like a pinball in the life of the church. In other words, friends, we don't want the echo of the word to stop and fall flat at noon on Sunday. So after the service, when you're talking to each other, don't be afraid, friends, to ask the, the one whom you're, whom you're talking to, how did the word encourage you today? What did you learn in God's word today? Take the initiative and share what you learned or how God used it in your life. Go out to lunch with brothers and sisters and include the sermon text as part of your conversation. Let the word echo. One of the ways the word echoes is my third application point. Number three, join a house-to-house -house group. Consider it prayerfully. Short of binding consciences, almost. Join a house-to-house -house group. One of the ways that we try to reverberate the word here at Redeeming Grace is that our house-to-house -house groups that meet every other week not only meet to care for one another and pray for one another, but we meet to apply the sermon text from the previous Sunday. We're trying to press the word more deeply into each other's hearts, right? We're using the application of the sermon to confess sin and ask for prayer and to share victories and to offer encouragement. So friends, if you're not part of a house-to-house -house group or don't regularly attend, I, I just fear you're missing out on a wonderful opportunity to disciple and be discipled in the word. It's amazing to me 
as I've done this now for years, how sometimes the echo of the preached word will radically reshape thinking as it echoes in house-to-house groups. It can strengthen us and encourage us even in between Sundays. Number four, ask good questions. Ask good questions. Friends, don't let a sermon pass where you let an important question go unanswered as it arises to your mind. If, if a question pops up, something you don't understand, go to work in the Bible and try to find the answer. And if you can't get the answer, guess what you do? Call me. <laughs> Call one of the elders. Call a mature Christian in our church family and says, did you understand that? Can you help me with this? I guarantee, I guarantee it would be a delight for us to answer those questions. We would love to interact with you about the word. Number five, commit to submit. Commit to submit. Come with the posture, friends, of standing under the word. Hold your life and your family and your job and your dreams and your desires all with an open hand. But hold with a tight-fisted death grip your readiness to hear the voice of Jesus and to follow where he leads. Friends, listening to the preaching of God's word is the most important thing we do together as a church. Our God has spoken, and he continues to speak. Our very life depends on his word. So let's commit to incline our ears and our hearts to him. Let's pray. Father, where would we be if not for your word? Your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Through the word of your gospel, you created life in our dead hearts. Through your word, you continue to feed us and sustain us and nourish us and renew our minds and hearts into the image of Christ. And one day, Lord Jesus, you're going to return. And by the word of your command, you're going to raise the dead and you're going to make all things new. And when that happens, the age of the year is going to yield to the age of the eye. So Father, help us to commit ourselves. Help us to endure, to persevere by faith. Not by faith in, in a mystical feeling or experience, but by faith with minds and hearts that are tethered to your word. That we come every week ready to listen and ready to obey by grace through faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.